Welcome back to What the Midwife Said, the podcast that's all about how babies and families are made. My name is Leah Hazard. I'm a mother, author of the best-selling memoir Hard Pushed, and I'm the midwife, in case you were wondering. In this series, I'm having honest conversations with some incredible guests, taking a deep dive headfirst into their experiences of fertility, pregnancy, birth, and parenting. That sheer <laughs> being in your mind and in your body and in a horrible place, and then once, one second it's just done. Yeah, and right before it's done, you really want to poo yourself as well. <laughs> yeah, you do. It's so grim. It sounds like... Like, like a version of Wonder Woman lightning crotch. I quite like the idea of that. Perhaps that's my alter ego. Oh, I'm so ready. I'm going to be a woman. I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> and Jamie's like, calm down. I'm like, no, but I'm ready. And my mummy said to me when I said no, she went, look, lol, if they are offering you this. It means I think you're going to live. And it means I think you've got a future. The first time round, it was, I was saying to the midwife, hey, I feel like I need to push. I need to push. Something's just, you know. And mm-hmm. it was a lot of, no, don't push. You're going to reverse everything. Stop pushing. Stop. Literally shouting at me. I've walked out onto stage in front of thousands of people. I've, you know, I've done all sorts of crazy stuff. And my thing before I do anything scary is you've grown two humans in your body. Nothing scarier than that. We're exploring the way we see our bodies and our relationships, the choices we make as we build our families and the highs and lows that those choices can bring. No judgment, no shame, just what the midwife said. And I want you to join the conversation too. If you have any questions or you'd like to share your experiences, you can find me on social media at Leah Hazard on Instagram or at Hazard underscore Leah on Twitter. Just include the hashtag what the midwife said. Today's guest is Rosamond Irwin, an award-winning journalist who currently writes for the Sunday Times and has also been featured in The Evening Standard, The Observer, Elle and Vogue. Rosamond has had what could be the quintessential pandemic pregnancy. She found out she was pregnant on the day of the first UK lockdown back in March and has just had a beautiful baby boy as our country is plunged back into Covid chaos. When my husband got chucked out um, in the evenings at, at the hospital, you know, they sort of said visitors have to leave. And I thought, mm, he's not a visitor. You know, to me, like, he's much more than a visitor. She said to me, look, your baby isn't getting enough food. You should give it formula. And then she said this horrible sentence, which is that she said, I feel sorry for your baby. And I'm trying my best there, you know. Rosamond may not be writing for the broadsheets at the moment, but she's chronicled her pregnancy so eloquently on social media, writing about the huge emotional challenges of navigating a maternity service that's been almost unrecognisably changed. So many women will be able to relate to Rosamond's feelings of isolation and vulnerability at this difficult time, but also to her deep admiration of the NHS and those who work within it. Thank you um, so much for taking the time to speak to me today when little baby is just a few weeks old. I guess we're probably still counting in days, are we? So how many how many days old? He is exactly two weeks old today. So oh we my go. goodness. Yeah. Well, uh, I would definitely still be in my pyjamas and paper pants at this point. So you're doing well <laughs> being on a podcast. Yeah, no, I'm doing all right, actually. Um, I've already been out for a walk today, so that feels like a bit of a victory. <laughs> 
Oh, that is a victory. That's kind of the only fun that anybody's having these days, I think. But I really appreciate you coming on at, at relatively short notice at such a crazy time to talk to me about your experiences because obviously I've been following you on Twitter and you've written so uh, eloquently and affectingly about your experiences in pregnancy. And I guess, I mean, I can kind of say you've had sort of the quintessential pandemic pregnancy in a way. Uh, I have. So I found out I was pregnant on the day the UK went into lockdown for the very first time. And actually, I was due the day we were going to, was it, God, what, what, what even was December the 2nd? I think, we, yeah, we were going to come out of lockdown. Obviously, we attempt, uh, he didn't come on that day, but I was technically due then, yeah. Mm-hmm. So your pregnancy was really bookended by lockdown one and lockdown two, in a sense. Yeah, basically, not very, not very great way to have a pregnancy, but um, but there we go. We've got to make the best of things, I suppose. Take me back a little bit to what was happening for you back in March when we went into the first lockdown and you found out you were pregnant. What was life like for you before everything changed? Well, I was going into the office for a start every day, uh, right at the beginning, and I can remember there was a moment when we were told we were all allowed, if we wanted to, to go and work from home. They were sort of trialing some of us not being in the office and obviously at that time I think that so that must have been a few days before the lockdown and I thought I was pregnant at that stage I didn't definitely know and so I can remember I I I asked my boss I mean I didn't tell her why though she may well have suspected um and I just cycled home as soon as they said you don't have to be here anymore um I just jumped on my bike because I thought you know what this doesn't feel great uh, obviously, we didn't know the effect coronavirus might have on pregnant women. And, um, you know, fairly recently, we've had Zika, which obviously has horrific side effects for pregnant women. And, and it would be a terrible thing to have. And so, you know, at that point, I was thinking, well, will this have a, if I caught this, would this have an effect on my baby? And because of the nature of my job, you know, a lot of my job is meeting people as a journalist. Um, you know, you have quite a, well, you're, I felt at the time that we were people who were particularly likely to get it. Actually, of course, during the lockdown, we became people particularly unlikely to get it because my whole world just moved online on, onto the computer, onto, you know, Zoom and and, mm-hmm. and everything like that. So it went. I went from being someone, I think, who's probably at high risk also living in London where at that point the pandemic was worse. Um, uh, I went to being someone at, at very low risk of catching it. But, um, but yeah, so so I sort of escaped the office thinking this would be a bad thing to get if you're pregnant, I imagine, and, um, and and came back. And actually, the first week, unfortunately, my dad had quite a serious accident. We sort of had to drive over to my parents and my poor husband because um, we couldn't get an ambulance for my dad. Uh, my poor husband had to um, take my dad into hospital in the back of the car. So it was quite a dramatic first week of lockdown. I can't remember sort of thinking Christ there's a lot of human life happening here um yeah and did you feel quite vulnerable at that time or was it just a sense of kind of unease about what might come I think it felt quite isolating because when you first because of the timing of it you know I sort of used I'm used to being around a lot of people and then to go straight into being at home you know doing everything over the phone um obviously I haven't I have a husband and, and he's wonderful. Um, so it, it was the two of us. Um, 
but but yeah, that that was my overriding feeling right at the beginning of the pregnancy was it felt at this time that should have felt quite. I mean, I I guess there's always an issue for people, isn't there? Because it's the stage where you're not telling people you're pregnant in case something goes wrong. So I think it's always quite tough. And 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 there were little upsides. So no one asked why I wasn't drinking because we didn't see anyone. So there was no one to ask that question. And um, and the other thing was that I could hide my morning sickness. I actually got it in the evening anyway, but um, mm-hmm. rather than the morning. But um, I could hide it because I obviously, you know, wasn't in the office feeling sick. So that was quite an, an advantage. So there, there were odd little upsides. Um, I got incredibly exhausted in one one of the weeks, uh, early weeks of my pregnancy, I think probably week five. And I, you mm-hmm. know, I was sort of sleeping until 1 p.m. Um, actually, I happened to be off work that week, but I could hide that from everybody because obviously we were all stuck at home. So, um, so yeah, so I just sort of slept all day for a week. Um, quite blissful. I, I remember that, that time well, because obviously for some weeks now, because um, my last stage pregnancy, I didn't get much sleep either. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I miss I miss all that sleep. That was quite glorious. Yeah, that sounds quite idyllic in a way, getting to kind of kind of make your own schedule, just uh, sleep as long as you need to sleep. But then I'm presuming at some point the, the bubble had to burst and you had to have your first encounter with the maternity service. So what was that like? Yeah, so the first thing I had was what should have been a 12-week scan, although my, I was nearly 14 weeks by the time I had mine. Um it, it wasn't terrible. I mean, I, I think that, I, so I gave birth at King's and uh, King's College Hospital in um, South East London. And um, all, you know, almost all of the staff that we encountered have, were brilliant. The sonographer at the first scan, he was particularly great, actually. Um, but my husband couldn't be there. And at that point, it was a blanket policy across the NHS that partners couldn't go with um with you to your scans um so that was a bit upsetting because obviously that's the first time I'm seeing my child in front of me on the screen and actually I found it a really emotional moment I hadn't really expected to I I always thought I'd be one of those people who found pregnancy a bit odd you know sort of like an alien growing inside me and and actually that completely wasn't my experience at all I felt incredibly attached to the baby and from you know that moment of seeing him for the first time on the screen for me was really, really emotional. And I wish my husband could have been then, you know, I was sort of both, I, I, I'm one of those people who has a bit of a nervous laugh sometimes. And like, it was, so I was sort of giggling about it because I was sort of overwhelmed by the emotion of it. But mm. I can remember having tears in my eyes and, and it felt a bit sad that my husband was outside in the car. You know, I could take these fairly rubbish photos on my iPhone and show them to him. But, um, afterwards, but, uh, thankfully obviously that 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 that's the uh, scan where they check for down syndrome and a couple of other things um and and the odds of that were very low um from that first scan so that it was good news um but I did think at the time you know if you were getting bad news in that situation and you were on your own and um, that would obviously be even more upsetting than it would otherwise be um so I think that was very very hard on people um mm-hmm. my second scan at 20 weeks, which is the anomaly scan, obviously, where they look for more complex problems. And um, that didn't go quite so well, although, again, the staff were great. It's not a criticism of them. But they couldn't, they, they sort of had to redo it three times. They couldn't get an accurate picture of the heart. And it looked like, from the pictures they had taken, that the baby might have a hole in its heart, which is obviously a very common problem, but mm-hmm. not what you want to hear ever. 
Mm, that must have been quite stressful to get that news and on your own as well. Yeah, I'm afraid I left really upset the hospital that day. So I'd gone in on a Friday afternoon and, you know, early afternoon. I I was the last person there. It was sort of all clearing out. So I think I'd gone in at 1pm and I was still there at 5 and and they were shutting down and all the other mothers had left. And my poor husband had sat in the car again uh, for four hours, I think. I mean, maybe it wasn't quite that long, but almost that long. And I went home and... um, we could go via my parents at that point so that probably tells me where we were in the lockdown but um but so we went over there because they they were very close to the hospital my mum is a doctor as well and and you know I got a bit teary with her and at that point we we decided because because it hadn't felt like they'd given me a like a definite answer they'd sort of said oh we think we sort of think it's okay and and you never want Mm. a kind of Mm. Doubt uh, in your mind uh, about that, and so I talked it through with my mum, and we were thinking that we'd have to get a private scan, which I hadn't wanted to do because I knew that um, there was a lot of demand for private scans, partly because people couldn't go in the NHS with their partners, whereas they could privately. So um, at that point, we looked into it, and this was over a weekend. Mm-hmm. And one, I mean, we were going to go for an expensive one because we thought, what's the point? And doing it if you, you know if you're going to do this do this and get the sort of definitive answer I'm afraid that is my baby crying in the background oh um, that's all right see and, everybody uh, she has a mum it's real <laughs> yeah yeah exactly there's evidence um and then what happened is um I actually got a call and this is the NHS actually coming out brilliantly so well done them from the hospital the following Monday and what, what I'd found was there was this terrible backlog if you were trying to get a scan privately because of obviously all these people shifting over to getting a private scan so their partners could be there. And, and maybe because they had worries like mine, I mean, some of the other people. Um, and so it looked like it was going to take ages. But the NHS did, did come, come out rather brilliantly here because they called and they said, look, the fetal cardiologist has looked at your scans. He's not happy with them. Probably nothing to worry about. But um, he wants you to come back in and he will oversee you getting a... And, you know, he's... I, I, obviously, I then Googled him, as as you do. And he's sort of one of the leading people in the whole... Well, probably the whole world on this. So I thought, okay, I'm getting really good care here. And so actually, I went back in that Thursday. And they can never totally rule stuff out. Obviously, they don't They don't want to do that. But but they were, he said he was pretty happy at the end. And so... It, but it had felt this really stressful thing. But like I said, the NHS did very well here. The bigger thing for me wasn't to do with the scans. It was to do with how how little in-person contact you got with the midwives. I had read that you had just two face-to-face appointments before 38 weeks. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I had one at around 20 weeks. God, when was the other? I can't even remember. But everything else was over the phone. And And how did that feel? Did you feel like you were able to have a kind of proper consultation or was that fairly limited um my own personal view on this is that the phone consultations didn't work at all um you know they were very nice some of them well one of mine was really really late and I think they were completely overwhelmed that day because when I called up they basically said oh yeah we're getting a lot of complaints today um because I'd sort of sat around waiting I was supposed to have a nine. 30 appointment I think and I still hadn't heard from them at two that was a one-off I never had any other problems like that I should add um and and they did 
eventually call me. But but that, actually, that was bad because I was then on on the phone to my boss, who I'd basically fobbed off all day, saying, "Look, I've got this appointment. They haven't come through." And so they never called me back after that. And it was like, well, it wasn't my fault. And it, and it all comes through on a withheld number, so it's not like you can just ring mm-hmm. back. Um, so at that appointment, they effectively acted as though I'd cancelled it or I hadn't shown up when mm-hmm. you know I'd sat around waiting for five hours. Um, but I would say that was a one-off and. When I saw mid- the midwives in person, I mean, they were wonderful. I mean, they, I, I have to say, one thing I really learned from this whole experience is that midwives are amongst, the ones I, I met certainly, are amongst the most impressive people in our society. They should all be paid more. These are people who really enjoy their jobs, as was the really nice thing that came across with the people I met, all mm-hmm. women. They, mm-hmm. they really seem to love what they did. And, and that's really inspiring and lovely. I'm so glad to hear you say that. And it's really heartening. And I I know that's not been everybody's experience, but just it's been so evident on social media over the last few weeks and months that um, there's a lot of frustration about people's journeys through the service during the pandemic and quite a lot of anger and frustration directed towards midwifery as a profession. And obviously we don't always get it right. And those times are quite well publicized and um commented on but it's it's heartening to feel that you felt for the contact you did have that that care came through my experience now now that I've come out the other end and and had a community midwife come and visit me I also think by the way we have a very Mm -hmm. high standard of care from community midwives again you're completely right it's not perfect um but I, I I do think we are very lucky in this country you know Obviously, uh, I, I, I'm conscious that some of the stuff I'm raising, I mean, I, I'll give you like a little thing that happened. So I was trying to sort of be like, you know, up on what I need to like know ahead of the birth. And mm-hmm. um, I listened to the old podcast and possibly because it knows what I'm generally interested in. When I Googled, like when I, when I searched for it, even pregnancy podcast, the first thing that came up was about this poor woman, I mean, it was the most extraordinary story, who had given birth during the Rwandan genocide. And I thought, Christ, here's me complaining about, you know, not getting enough midwife uh, in person. But, but of course, I, I do want to say that I think it's okay for us to say when things are less than perfect, even when, you know, there are worse things happening in the world. I think a lot of the reason women were very, I think we all want to say, oh, well, hang on, things aren't too bad for me. Um, and it's okay to say, you know, like maybe you didn't have the birth experience that you wanted because of the pandemic or whatever it was. I think it's okay to say, yeah, like I'm okay and, you know, worse things have happened to people, but this wasn't the experience I wanted. I mean, we've all had to make major adjustments in our lives, obviously. But I think some people are worried about complaining about this stuff because they think, oh, well, hang on, other people have it worse than me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm conscious that actually King's was in lots of ways a great hospital and I had much better support from my husband that I was allowed during the birth than some people would have had. You know, some some people had to give birth almost on their own without their partner there until right at the last minute and then, you know, were stuck in hospital for a few days basically on their own. And mine was not that extreme. But I do think we've got to say that those really extreme experiences are not that acceptable because mine was bad enough, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think I think people are kind of worried about complaining at the moment because they acknowledge that there are worse things in the world. But I think it's kind of OK to raise things that are less than perfect, too. 
Mm, I think it's absolutely okay and it's more than okay. It's important and it's important for us as midwives to hear as well because it's the only way that we can um, have a kind of barometer about whether we are getting it right or not. And I think comments like yours online and the hashtag but not maternity and that whole momentum behind that movement have actually affected real change as the pandemic continues. So that must be quite gratifying, I would think, in a way to see that things have changed because people have raised their concerns. Yeah, absolutely. So I should say that my husband was then allowed to go because I had a 36-week scan. So he was then allowed, and that was partly because people like me kicked up stink because the complaint that I had was when they re- sort of reopened society August, September time, my husband could go to the pub. You know, he he was being told on the front page of the Daily Telegraph, you know, and, and me, so was I, incidentally, uh, go back to work <laughs> or face the sack. I mean, that was what the, the noises that were coming out of the government that was a headline, you know, that was coming from number 10. And yet he still wasn't being allowed in for my scan. So they changed that policy. So that was good. Um, the only reason that I think, and I, I'm pretty sure about this, so I'm going to say it, King's offers a 36-week scan because obviously it's a teaching hospital and they're doing research. Obviously, you wouldn't get that everywhere in the NHS. And so my 36-week scan was very different from my other two scans. I'm grateful that my husband could be there. But um, he only got in halfway through. They wouldn't wait for him. And it was clear that it was to do with measuring the baby. And they didn't give us anything like the beautiful moment I have when I first saw my son on the screen. We did not have that in that scan. But look, I'm still grateful <laughs> yeah. he was there. And bluntly, I, I'm, you know, I'm a big believer in giving birth, if, if it's what you want, in a teaching hospital. Because from my point of view, I got extra care because they were doing whatever wonderful research they're doing. I'm happy to support that research. And also, bluntly, you get the advantage. So if that's the right thing for people, I think, you know, it was for me. And um, I'm very happy that I got some extra care out of it. So that was quite good. Um, The big thing for me was all about labour, because I was really scared that they weren't going to let my husband in, um, you know, for hours Mm -hmm. and hours and hours. Um, And that has been the experience of lots of women. And and I think that is really, really wrong. I mean, I think a birthing partner is a partner. They're not, you know, I, I, when when my husband got chucked out um, in the evenings at, at the hospital after labor, you know, on the on the post-birth um, ward, um, you know, they sort of said visitors have to leave. And I thought, mm, he's not a visitor. You know, to me, like, he's much more than a visitor. He's not, you know, somebody who's turned up you know, he, he's someone who's, bit, who's been here and supporting me the whole way through the pregnancy. And, and I didn't like that idea. You know, I think, I think it's been a lot of en- a, a sort of evidence, isn't there, that um, birthing partners are actually really, really important. Um, and, you know, the support he offered to me, um, things went wrong in my labour. And, and God, if he hadn't been there, it would have been just infinitely worse. Mm-hmm. So what, if you can give an example, even, was there something that he noticed or that he was able to do for you that maybe hadn't been seen by caregivers around you or was it a particular yeah. thing? <laughs> yeah. So um, I went into labour on uh, a are- Sunday evening and I didn't give birth until the following Tuesday morning. And um, the big thing was that for me that my epidural fell out. Uh, which was obviously horrific. And um, so I'd, I'd got to four centimetres dilated, which is where in my birth plan I said I wanted the epidural to go in. And so I'd gone from being in a lot of pain to no pain, thinking everything was brilliant, feeling on top of the world, 
super happy. I'd also, sorry, I should say I'd been vomiting loads and it suddenly mm-hmm. switched off all the awful things that were happening to my body uh, until it didn't. And what had happened is the epidural had fallen out of my back. Um, and the person who noticed that was my husband. I was a bit out of it. Obviously, I was in a huge amount of pain and very, very tired. Mm-hmm. And um, my I thought something had gone wrong with my catheter, which obviously I wouldn't have been able to feel because I had an epidural. So it couldn't possibly have been that. But it was my husband that twigged. He, he sort of looked at me. He looked at my back and he said, why is this hanging out? Um, I'm sure it's not supposed to be. And that was the point that we realized something had gone very, very badly wrong. So midwife explained it to me afterwards why that was such a horrific thing to happen. And basically, she was like, you're probably about a level six on the pain scale when we put the, you know, when the epidural went in. And then you went basically to one or two, kind of naught, really. I mean, to be honest, I was I was on a high with the epidural. Um, (laughs) I felt great. Fully epiduralized. Um, Yeah. And and look, that's not right for everyone. Again, you know, this was my experience. I I just, but it was good for me. Mm -hmm. And then basically she's like, the problem was when the epidural fell out, you went back to 10 on the pain scale and you didn't have any of that buildup. So what happened to your body was, you know, big pain, then down to nothing, then, oh my God, the, the most pain you, you've felt, ever felt in your life. And I, I've been run over, like I got hit by a motorbike when I was 17. This was worse, that level of pain. I mean, I was, I was so, it was the middle of the night as well when it happened. And um, the uh, anaesthetist for the labor ward was in theatre. So someone was obviously having an emergency cesarean. And so uh, an anaesthetist had to come in who, was no, who normally works on the neurology ward. And obviously, she didn't know where anything was. I mean, she's a complete superstar and, and basically my hero. But at the time it happened, I, I rather embarrassingly, because I was in so much pain, I think I actually said, please help me. I, like, <laughs> I sort of screamed Aww. at her. And well, I think that's not the- embarrassing at all. I think that's a completely legit request at that stage. Well, when the epidural did go in, by this point, I'm having contractions really close together. So it's a very, very hard job for her. This is why she's my hero. Because, yeah. um, so the contractions were happening like every every 30 seconds or something. So she had a really short window between contractions to get the epidural in. And when she got it in, I, I just said to her, I love you. <laughs> and, <laughs> and she said, yes, a lot. Of, I make a lot of friends in this job. Um, no, she was fabulous. But but you know, this poor woman was doing it in the middle of the night, not her usual job, and 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 did a stellar job actually. Um, but the whole thing was obviously quite traumatic for me. Um, and I was supposed to at that point, because I'd been in labour so long, they had put me in a slot for an emergency C section, which I then missed because of the epidural falling out. So it, they'd put me down for three thirty a.m. C section, and. Um, I couldn't then do it. So I had to, so I went from thinking I was having a vaginal delivery to thinking, okay, fine, I'm now having an emergency C-section to back to, okay, you're actually going to have to push this baby out. So a lot changed. I mean, it was mm. 36 hours, but a lot changed in how I had to think about things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't totally opposed to an emergency C-section. You know, I could see that it was the best outcome, but at the same point, you know, I, I had gone through a lot to get to the point where I wanted a vaginal delivery and that I thought that was where I was headed so it was sort of quite a big path uh, over that period of of adjustment Mm -hmm. Um, which I'm sure Mm -hmm. lots of women have to make you know that that isn't anything to do with the pandemic you know that that just happens. But then having to make those decisions and adjust your mindset in really extraordinary circumstances 
um, after a, a challenging and unusual pregnancy journey is extra challenging. And I would imagine that for you and for many women, having your partner there as you go through that transition and wrap your head around these things is really vital. Yes, yeah, so I don't know how long I had to wait without my husband, but it wasn't very long. And I'm really conscious. So when I first went in, they wouldn't let him in. Um, then they checked and I was already uh, a bit dilated, which is when I think they sort of, and also screaming in agony. Um, so, and it was the middle of the night when I first went in. So I think there were lots of things that meant that he got in the room faster. But if I would not been with him there for that first bit, when you know you're not allowed an epidural, you're in a lot of pain, you're trying to use gas and air, which for me wasn't that effective. It was a bit effective, but it wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't, for some people, obviously, it's great. Um, I, you know, I was sort of howling like an animal on the floor at one point, and I just thought, Christ, if I'd had to do that without him there. And so many people had to do that, and I've been contacted by so many couples, you know, both, 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 um, both people who've given birth and their partners, you know, to say that this for them was not the experience they wanted. The most upsetting things that people have contacted me about, and, you know, I just can't even imagine how horrific this is, is people who went to their 20-week anomaly scan were told that the baby wasn't viable at that scan. Uh, one woman had to have the termination on her own, you know, not even because her baby, you know, was not going to survive. And to hear that news on your own, and then worse, to have to do... The worst thing for, you know, a very wanted child, I think that is so devastating. And I would really worry about the emotional damage that would cause to someone. I I feel, you know, that to me feels absolutely wrong and a really bad decision of a hospital. Um, I I don't think that's acceptable. And I'm, I'm pleased that, you know, lots of the hospitals have moved towards better positions. If I'd given birth at King's in March or April, I would have had a worse experience than I did. So my husband was allowed to come and visit after the labour for 10 hours a day. Um, and he came for every single minute of that. I mean, thank God. Mm. But I was still conscious mm. I had 14 hours. Because I'd had a bad labour, I was on a catheter. I had to have antibiotics. So I was on an IV drip. And so I was quite bed bound. And the first day, the first night for me was really bad because I couldn't get out of the bed. Um, I was, yeah, because of the mm. catheter. And I was trying to stop my baby crying while, you know, not being able to move very much and also trying to start breastfeeding when Mm -hmm. I obviously had had this very long labor and really felt rough. And I didn't feel sufficiently supporting that. The midwives were great, but, you know, they they had so many people on that ward, you know, they can't possibly give you the support that you get one-on-one from a partner being there mm-hmm. and I found mm-hmm. that really emotionally draining and and you know I could tell that other people found it even harder because obviously you're sharing a award with other people you know with other women mm-hmm. and there was a woman next to me just sobbing the whole time um throughout that first night and you know that's really really upsetting for her it is upsetting and it's interesting to hear you talk about these moments in women's journeys that we know even in the best of times are sort of pinch points in the system. So for example, um, when a woman is given bad news, when it's a bad outcome, of course that's really the most traumatic thing that, that a woman can experience in a sense. And we know even under good circumstances, that's a hugely challenging time to deliver good service. Um, and also we know that the postnatal wards are often called kind of the Cinderella service because 
you know, the big moment of glory has passed and clock has struck midnight and then all of a sudden you've got a ward full of exhausted mums and babies. And we know even in the best of times, that is a moment of challenge and vulnerability. So it's it's interesting, although I guess not entirely unsurprising, that these are moments where in these circumstances, women are especially vulnerable and especially struggling. My story didn't end with me being discharged either because my baby unfortunately got jaundice. And um, the midwife, who was absolutely wonderful, the community midwife who came over, said, I'm really sorry, but you've got to go to a tonight and get your baby seen to and seen whether he's over a certain level, which would have resulted in him you know, needing to have the treatment, that sort of light treatment. I suspect a lot of the reason he had such severe jaundice was because I hadn't got breastfeeding going well enough in the hospital. Um partly because of all the things that had happened during the labor and, you know, I was exhausted. Um, and thank God I had the midwife intervention because she helped get me back on a path where the breastfeeding was going much, much better. Um, I'd got quite in my head about breastfeeding because I'd done NCT, which, uh, you know, I'm actually quite positive about. I met wonderful people. Um, some of it was very useful. It wasn't all to my taste, but that's fine. You know, there's got to be something for everyone there. But I'd got really stuck around the sort of they they'd been quite prescriptive about the position in which you breastfed, and basically this midwife just came and chucked my baby on my breast, and um, <laughs> in a way that I didn't think you were allowed, you know. And and actually, mm. she was completely right to do that because that got everything going so much better. And once you realise you don't have to do it in this perfect way that you've been told, I, for me that was that was really helpful. Um, and I'm sure for other people, I mean, you know, sometimes you can be very in your head about doing everything perfectly. It's mm-hmm. like that thing, the enemy of, what is it? The enemy of the perfect is the good. Enemy the of success around. is perfection, Basically, I think. if you can make it work, actually, you don't need to do everything perfectly. Um, yeah. And I think it was really, I'm really lucky to have had that intervention because at that point, my baby was obviously quite sick. And a lot of that was because the breastfeeding was not going very well. Um, I did have something really awful happen in hospital, which I do want to mention because I think this is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt very supported by a lot of the midwives, but in the middle of one of the nights, um, the second night, and, and bear in mind that my baby was struggling on the food front and I had made a decision to breastfeed exclusively, um, which I'm now incredibly happy about as a decision, but, but was obviously proving difficult. Um, the second night that I was in hospital, a, I don't think she was a midwife. I think she was sort of a healthcare assistant, whatever the equivalent is for midwifery. Uh, she came in and she said to me, uh, bear in mind, I want an IV drip at this point that she's saying this, which was the antibiotics coming in. And, um, that meant I couldn't move one of my arms properly. So breastfeeding was really quite tricky, particularly when I was on that drip. Um, she, she said to me, look, your baby isn't getting enough food. You should give it formula. And then she said this horrible sentence, which is that she said, I feel sorry for your baby. And I'm trying my best there, you know? And I said, I'm, I do not want my child to have formula. You know, that's my personal decision. Obviously anyone can make a different decision, but you know, this is my child and I have made a decision to breastfeed exclusively and, um, you know, I got incredibly upset about it. And it, it was two, it, it, no, sorry, it was midnight. Um, and I was frazzled. And, you know, I just, I, it was really inappropriate. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I have since been told by a number of midwives that they are very unhappy that that would ever happen to anyone um, because it just sort of isn't really right. Um, yeah, but, no, that's that's not okay. And that does sound incredibly undermining, especially at a time when you really were doing your best and you had made what sounds like a very conscious decision about how you were feeding. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, my best wasn't going very well. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I needed what I needed was support in that decision. What I didn't need was criticism when, you know, and, and I'm sure this is true for many women, you know, other people would have taken a view at that point, of course, when they're told that that that's coming from someone who's a professional and therefore they should listen to it. And that's not necessarily right, you know, because obviously they've got to do the best thing for them and their baby, but they've also got to think what, what you know, how they actually feel about this. Because I think if I put my baby on formula at that point, that would have been a terrible mistake for me. Uh, you know, obviously for other people that would have been the right decision, but I, did, I didn't really think it was the right thing to be told that. Usually on on this podcast, what I've been doing is sort of closing by asking guests if there's something that anyone said to them during their journey that really stuck with them. But I think we've we've kind of hit the nail on the head there. I mean, that's that's quite a stinging comment, and it obviously has stayed with you, understandably. Yeah, and I just want to say though that lots of other people have said wonderful things and really helpful things, and um, the community midwives who came to see me were amazing and really helped on the breastfeeding front and turned around what was not going well into something that for me now has actually been really lovely and wonderful. And, you know, I get it isn't right for everybody, but for me, breastfeeding has been a really, really, really positive experience. I hope it continues to be that. Um, But, you know, the first four days of it were terrible and the past 10 days of it have been absolutely excellent and and really great. So um, I'm now very, very positive. So... Yeah, and that's a nice oh. thing to say. And he's a yeah. little fat baby now, so he's back at his, his birth weight. So it's oh, all going good. quite well in that regard. Oh, I'm so glad you've turned the corner. It's so hard in those early days to see light at the end of the tunnel, but it sounds like you're kind of basking in it now, which is great. Um, and I think, I mean, you, you've raised so many really important points that I think so many women will be able to relate to. And it might be good just to close on maybe a kind of speculative and positive note about how we can learn these lessons from the journeys of women like you as we go forward and potentially continue with a sort of lockdown or semi-lockdown situation over the coming months. Um, And it's important to say that the visiting restrictions and the changes to protocols and so on were initially brought in for infection control to restrict or stop the spread of the virus to protect other women and staff. So I have to point that out. But given the fact that those restrictions have had such a vast impact on women's experiences, how do you think that the woman's pregnancy and birth journey should look from here on? How can we improve things as we move forward while still keeping women and staff safe? Well, you're absolutely right. I do completely understand that they were brought in for infection control reasons. I think for me, the difficult point was when they were sort of saying to us all go out and eat you know eat out to help out all of that stuff go back to the pub um you know go back to the office when like there were still very severe restrictions on birth I think that felt the really unfair time but I Mm -hmm. think 
for me, this is something that needs to be prioritised. You know, this should have been prioritised way beyond the pub. Although the pub's important, incidentally. It's not that I don't <laughs> think that that has a value yeah. at all. The pub but is I why think... we have a lot of babies, actually, in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite, exactly. But But I think it's really important to say that birth, everything leading up to birth and the immediate aftermath, you know, it is such, particularly when it's your first child like it is for me, um, it's so important that one, you're supported well, and two, that you feel that, um, you know, you don't feel isolated. I found that the really hard element. I felt isolated from medical attention. I felt isolated from my friends. And, you know, at times, obviously, even my partner and my husband couldn't be there. So I, I think that's what I would prioritize is, you know, I, I think people have particularly you know I was conscious in my third trimester that I really did not want to get COVID then because that was when they sort of mm-hmm. saying um so I was I basically saw nobody so I I, I did think I was very little risk and, and obviously I got checked but, oh uh, that's a really important thing you need um testing uh of pregnant women so mine I I got as soon as I went in there and of course, they told me after I delivered a couple mm-hmm. of days later. Oh, by the way, you don't have coronavirus. It's like, yeah, oh, I know. Right. <laughs> yeah, but um, but I think they could speed that up. Um, that would be a really helpful thing. I think all hospitals should be making sure that at least husbands or the birth partner, depending who it is, um, can be there for longer than you know. Some people said they they were only allowed to visit for an hour after the birth. I mean, that's terrible. That that feels very unacceptable to me. So that's something that I put in there because that support is really necessary. And then the the big thing going forward, I guess, is just that I think they need to make sure that things like I'm, I'm terribly worried that there's going to be a high rate of things like postnatal depression. I think you'll get lower breastfeeding rates because the support in the community isn't there. And, you know, maybe some of that has to be on Zoom or whatever, but I really think they need to make sure that they're checking in with new mums and and making sure that those things are happening because I think there'll be really quite bad knock-on effects of this. And, and, you know, we'll see them everywhere across uh, across healthcare. But I think it really matters when it's a baby's start in life and also, you know, new mothers are are an exceptional case. It's, It's really important that health healthcare is delivering for them because it makes such a profound difference when it does. It really does make a huge difference and as you say this time is a really formative event in any woman's life and it is so important whether there's a pandemic or not. So I hope that Matt Hancock is listening. Unlikely, but it would be good. good. (laughs) Jean Freeman in Scotland, are you listening? Because I think you've raised um, you've raised some really fantastic points. Um, oh, and there's Baby as well agreeing with us that um, yeah. we we he are agrees, struggling with yeah. yeah we're struggling with mixed messaging from the government. Um, we have to implement a more effective test and trace program. Be maybe a little bit more flexible and compassionate around visiting, and also be mindful that the postnatal period is so vulnerable for women as well. So I think you've you've given us a fantastic bullet list of things to to think about and improve as we move forward. And I I really appreciate you taking the time to share that with us, Rosamond, today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of What the Midwife Said, hosted by me, Leah Hazard, and produced by Steve Bland of Bambi Media. 
I hope you enjoyed my chat with Rosamond Irwin as much as I did. I think there's a lot there that many of you will be able to relate to and I hope you get in touch and let me know what you think. If you have anything to say about our conversation, please get in touch on social media. Remember to review and subscribe to the podcast so that other listeners can find us. Share your thoughts using the hashtag what the midwife said and tune in next week.